When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, welcome back everybody. I hope everybody had a good weekend. I know we're, I guess by the time you're watching this, we already have Monday under our belt. So we already got a good start. We got that out of the way. Um, my weekend was pretty crazy. If I actually go over here, so I posted this video, this last one on Friday evening, and I could tell it was, it was doing really well. Cause after I posted it, I mean, it got like over 500 views within the first hour. And then my, my phone was just being blown up with notifications of, of comments. And I know that it got shared, like YouTube recommended it to a lot of people because just between that video on Friday evening and now I've had multiple days of like 500 plus subscribers, which I think is pretty good for a channel that has, uh, just coming up on 4,000 subscribers. So everybody that's new, welcome to the channel. This is a dividend growth portfolio that I show off what I'm doing week after week, as well as I go over different investing topics, answer different questions, and just have that as it be the premise of this whole this whole experiment here. And so I know that a lot of people are new. And in fact, we had a ton of different questions. If I go and scroll down this, I mean, there's just hundreds of different comments here all in the past couple of days, as well as I get a lot of emails on the Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. So that's in the description. You can email me if you want to ask questions that way. Um, but I read every single one of them. And so if I don't have time to reply to your comment, I did read it. It's just really hard to get to every single one at this point. Uh, what I wanted to do is go over a lot of the comments that I think are, are particularly interesting or thought provoking or challenge some of the ideas I have and the strategies that I'm using that might be helpful to other people that aren't asking that. So I'm going to go over and hand select a bunch of the different comments as well as the different emails that I got and re respond to those in open discussion here. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to go over and give you an update on my April income. And so this is an income portfolio. I'm looking to raise my dividend income month over month. And then the last thing I want to do is go over some news. I'll just go over here and show you this clip. So the first news item that I'll tease for you is uh, there's this Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting, and they're asking a lot of questions of both Warren and Charlie. And Charlie gets asked directly what he thinks of this whole Boeing situation and whether he would fly on the planes, all that type of stuff. And you get to see his reaction. Um, what about um, Boeing and the 737 MAX? I mean, they're going to fix that. So you'll get to see his reaction as well as what I think of it. The other thing is I've already showed you the trailer for and told you about what I thought of The Inventor, which was the HBO documentary on Elizabeth Holmes. But ABC is now coming out with a, well, they've already came out with the podcast and I've listened to the first three episodes of it. And then they came out with a TV series that's based off of the podcast. It's called The Dropout. So I'll be talking about that as well. But the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to go back and update you on what my monthly income was for April for last month. And so it's the sixth today, which means I have the statement for the previous month's income. I know how much I was paid in dividends April, and that's what I'm going to update you on. If you don't know, every single one of these companies pays dividends. I can go into any of these, and every single company in them pays dividends. That's part of the portfolio. What I do is I track how much that I was paid out every single month. I add that together, 
And well, actually the brokerage does that for me. They put out a statement that they tell me how much I was paid in dividends for the previous month. And then I put that together on a graph and I just track it so I can see, I can see the progress I'm making. And last month, so April, I was paid $123 in dividends. 100% of that was reinvested back into my portfolio, which will buy more shares, which those shares will now, those additional shares will now pay me more income and so on and so forth. That's the whole goal of it. When you're starting off and you're getting these like $9, $13, it really is like you're doing most of the work at that point, to be honest. You're not getting a ton of compounding. But now I'm getting to the point where $71, $108, $123, you know, that's actually a helping hand. That's quite a bit of money. Um, that's like putting in a whole deposit every single month that now my portfolio is doing for me that I'm not having to work for. So I mean, I do feel like I'm getting to the point where my portfolio is starting to, that snowball is starting to roll. It's just a, a tough thing to get going. I have another chart that I, I keep track of as well, and I update it every quarter. This isn't the start of a new quarter, so I just have the, the latest one is Q1 of 2019, which I was paid $204 for. So nothing special there. Hopefully this will keep going up as well, and I'm pretty confident it, it will as I continue to build this portfolio up. So I wanna move on to the main focus here, which, like I said, I went through and I gathered a bunch of different questions that a lot of people had over the past few days, and I just went and handpicked some of them. And I'll start off with Deedon 11B. He says, do you think a portfolio like this with the same strategy is doable on a different platform that only offers drips and has trading fees otherwise? Keep up the great work. Okay, Deedon, I'm going to go to the drawing board here and break this up. So first we have DGI, Dividend Growth Investing. Second thing we have is B for brokerage. And the last thing we have here is S for the stock market. And this is the three different parts, I would say, to this whole strategy. So you have DGI, which represents dividend growth investing. That's a style of investing where you purchase companies that not only do they pay dividends, but they have a history of increasing their dividend payments year over year. Most people know that if they're familiar with DGI, but dividend growth investing, it's not a brokerage. It's not M1 Finance. Dividend growth investing is a style of investing. It's a strategy. And the brokerage, what that is, is your mediator between you purchasing shares and not. So you have the stock market, which is all the different companies listed on like the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. And then you have a lot of brokerages, which they uh, help negotiate the transactions to the stock market. They manage your, your accounts. They manage your money. They manage the equities that you own. They don't own the equities. They just manage them and hold them for you. And the brokerages vary really greatly. You have the old school ones like Vanguard and Schwab and Fidelity. You have a lot of newer ones like Robinhood and M1 Finance and Acorns and Stash. You have all these different ones to choose from. And then you have a bunch of different investing strategies. So a lot of people are playing mix and match. You pick a different investing strategy, you pick a different brokerage, and then you use that to invest in the stock market. The only thing that's really consistent is the stock market's the same for everybody, right? But really what I tried to do was I tried to pick a strategy that I liked first and foremost, and then a brokerage that fit best with that investing strategy. And I really liked the dividend growth and strategy, and I think the brokerage that fits best with dividend growth investing is M1 Finance. And uh, the reason why is pretty simple. M1 Finance offers a couple things that other brokerages don't offer. One of them is fractional shares. So if I go over to my holdings here, look at this. I own uh, on these shares, I own like 29.98, 34.10, 36.51. 
Now, that might be like, okay, why, do you, why is it that important to have fractional shares? Well, the reason why is the amount of compounding that you have and being able to consistently reinvest your dividends. So if I go over to the activity statement here, and I go to like the, the dividends six days ago here, I was paid $38 in dividends. Now, in most cases, uh, most shares of companies cost more than $38. So on most brokerages, I'd have to keep saving my money until I get like 100 or $200, and then I could buy one share of a company, right? And that might take two months. Like I look here, and I got paid $123. So on most brokerages, I'd have to wait multiple months if it was just my dividends that were able to be reinvested. With M1 Finance, it lets it reinvest automatically any amount above $10, which is pretty beneficial, I think. Like I'm buying just $5 of waste management, you know, 0 0.05 of a share, uh, 0.14 of LQD, you know, 0 0.02. These smaller amounts, it might seem insignificant, but being able to put them right back into the market as quick as possible, I think is a, a pretty big thing in speeding up the amount of compounding. Now, to answer his question, I do think that you can do this strategy on different brokerages. I think that you'll have a couple disadvantages. A lot of the like the legacy brokerages, they charge you per trade. So they'll be like, okay, if you want to repurchase and, and purchase more shares, you have to pay five bucks. That's one disadvantage. And another is that you don't get quite as quick compounding by not having the fractional shares. So if you're using something like Schwab or Vanguard or Fidelity or E-Trade or whatever it is, what you have to do to do this strategy is you just have to implement it differently. You have to, instead of just purchasing as soon as you get like one dividend payment of one company, you have to group them up for a month, pool it with your own money, and then you can actually do a more active purchasing, a more active purchasing strategy where you look at companies that have dropped in price. You look at ones that you think are good deals and allocate your money to those. I wouldn't do the drip where it just goes right back into the same company. I would pool your money together every month and then I would disperse it into the companies that I think are the best value of that month. So that's what I'd do differently if you're not able to use M1 Finance is I would use a different brokerage. I do think that you can do dividend growth investing on a different brokerage and still have the strategy work. You just have to be a little bit more active about it. M1 Finance makes it so you can be really lazy and do this strategy. Like it literally just works in the background. So that's a nice thing about it. But I wouldn't totally change your investing strategy just because you're not able to use M1 Finance. And so this, this brokerage is U.S. only. That's one thing that we're pretty lucky about here in the U.S. is we have, we have a lot of uh, people here starting these like smaller fine tech companies that are offering these amazing brokerages like, like Robinhood and M1 Finance. And unfortunately, because of the amount of work it is to make it available all across the world, they usually just start off and they try to tap into the U.S. market before they take on like Europe or Canada. But I wouldn't be too discouraged about that. I think that if you're in uh, Europe or you're in Canada or wherever, just pick a brokerage that works for you. You can implement the same strategy and it will also become easier to implement as you get higher dollar amounts. So as your portfolio grows and you get past 30 or 40, $50,000, the amount you're getting paid in dividends is now enough that you can start purchasing whole shares anyways. And so the loss of the fees and that, that type of thing become less and less, if that makes sense. Um, anyway, that's my, that's my take on that. Alrighty, so the next question here is an email I got. He says, hey, Joseph, new subscriber here. It seemed like you supported Warren Buffett's teachings on investing. He actually recommends that one buys the S&P 500 index funds for the long term. May I ask why you don't just buy SPY or an equivalent product? 
Okay, I think that's a good question. I am a huge fan of Warren Buffett. I've highlighted him many times on this series as well in past videos. And he does he does say frequently that people should buy the S&P 500 index. I will say a couple thoughts on this. I'm also I'm also a fan of of other investors besides Warren Buffett. I'm a big fan of Peter Lynch. Um I think he's an incredible investor and he had totally opposite advice. He he was avid about the the fact that he thought individual investors had a great advantage in picking in picking stocks and being able to pick stocks that they're familiar with, the companies that they have experience with. Um, and I'm also fans of investors like Howard Marks and others that have different different ideas as well. But to Warren Buffett, I think the big thing with him is that when he gives advice, he knows the implications of it. Whenever he speaks, it makes news. And he knows that he's talking to potentially tens of millions of people. And if he goes out and tells them advice, he wants to make it so that they're as safe as possible with it. So when he says buy the S&P 500, what I think he's doing is making it so that he's telling people the most conservative, safest bet possible. One of the other things that Warren Buffett has said, another thing, another piece of advice that he's given is he said consistently that diversification is a hedge against ignorance. And most people are ignorant of the stock market, of company fundamentals, of being able to analyze them in any meaningful way. And that's not, I'm not using ignorant as a uh, negative or derogatory term there. Most people have zero interest in it. So the fact that they're ignorant of it isn't a, it's not a, a insult it by any means. I literally people, most people could not care less about different fundamentals of different, uh, different public companies. But the fact remains that they don't know anything about it. They don't care to learn anything about it. And a way that they can go along and do pretty well in the stock market without having to do any research at all is just by buying SPY. And so for a lot of people, that's the route to go. There's a few people that I think do have an interest in it, can implement different strategies and ways of doing it that fit their needs better. And for those people, I don't think they need to buy ETFs like SPY. What I will say too is that my portfolio, if you actually look at it, if I go through the holdings, I mean, I broke this up by different sector. Every sector has some of the largest companies in the S&P 500. Like if I go to finance here, these are some of the biggest financial firms in the U.S. and Canada. If I go to healthcare here, these are some of the biggest healthcare companies in, in the United States and in the world. And so this isn't a radically different portfolio than the S&P 500. All I've done is I've gone through and I've handpicked 55 companies from the S&P 500 that I think a little bit more conservative. They pay dividends. They have a couple different metrics to them. But really, I mean, these are all mostly from the S&P 500. I think if Warren Buffett went and looked at this portfolio, I don't think it would upset him at all. You'd think that a lot of these are solid companies. I mean, a lot of them he has in his very own portfolio. And so I wouldn't be worried about too harsh of criticism if I was able to show him this portfolio. Alrighty, so the next question is from Greg. He says, having a high confidence in the companies you invest in helps during the times when they are in the red, often by market conditions beyond the control of those companies. Looking back on your experience, would you recommend a concentrated portfolio for those who are at the beginning of their dividend growth investing? The dividend amounts would be larger than if, the, if you invest in 20 to 30 companies from the start. All right, so let me actually go and draw this out because I, I have a different line of thought here on this. So I think the amount of companies that you invest in, the amount of diversification you have should depend more upon your knowledge of the companies than the amount of money you have. So like Warren Buffett, like I, I just said in the last comment, that his advice was uh, that diversification 
is a hedge against ignorance, meaning the less you know about something, the more you should diversify. I'll draw this out on kind of a linear scale here. So we have the y-axis here, the x-axis here. Then we have k for knowledge, and we have the number of companies. I think it should look just like this. If I'm graphing this out, as you increase the amount of companies that you own, the amount of knowledge that you have to have about those individual companies decreases. And likewise, the less companies that you own, the more you should know about them. So if you have only five different picks, you better know those companies inside and out. There's a couple in my portfolio that I would be comfortable doing that with. I have Disney would be one that I'd be fine having a really large position in, even if it went in the red. There's ones like Costco, um, Realty Income Corp. There's a, a couple different companies that I've personally studied. I, I know their business plan and I, I know the ins and outs of them. And they're like conviction picks, ones that I would be fine holding way into the red. And then there's other ones that, that I don't know quite as much about. Either way, I think the more diversified your portfolio is, the less you have to know intimately about all those different companies. I will say if you're starting off and you're on a, a different brokerage, I wouldn't overly diversify right from the start. I think it's fine if you're starting with a couple thousand dollars to have five or so dividend growth companies that you can learn and you can slowly expand the amount as you get higher capital. So that's what I think about that. The next question is from Matthew Smith. He says, curious what you use to track dividend cuts, etc. I'm having a hard time seeing all my dividends in M1, unfortunately. I wish there was an easier way outside of going to the research tab for every stock I own. All right, so I know exactly what he's saying. There is a way better way. So let me, let me show you here. When I first started M1 Finance, and I was doing the exact same thing. I'd go in and I'd look at like utilities here just to pick a random one. Let's go to the Southern Company. And to be able to look at it, you'd have to go to this page where it shows the, the company and then look at this right here where it says dividend yield 4.6%. And you can't see if they've cut their dividend or if they slashed it, uh, anything like that. And that's really tough to do when you have 20 plus holdings, right? You don't want to have to keep track of all of that. Go over to seekingalpha.com. That's, that's this website here. This is Seeking Alpha. Fill out a profile. It's completely free. I'm not like... I have zero affiliation with them, but you can fill out a free profile. And then what you do is you hit the portfolio tab uh, on this. It'll have an option to edit it. So I can go here and edit the profile holdings. And then this takes, it's tedious. I mean, you got to spend, spend an evening watching Netflix or whatever, and just start typing in the ticker symbols and add them all to your portfolio. Make sure that you have every single one added in and it will look something like this, where you have this big list. So you go to the portfolio. It, it might default you to this page here where it says latest. You click on data, and then that's where you can get to the dividends tab here. That's where you get to the dividends tab. And once you're here, you can edit and add in your entire portfolio. And you'll notice that it has the dividend yield for every single one of them. It has all the information. You can go and set up alerts and do a bunch of other stuff. If you want more details on how to set all of this up, I have an episode. It's an older one. It's actually the third episode. So go back and look at episode three. It's how to pick dividend stocks, M1 Finance, Joseph Carlson, episode three. If you watch this video here, it literally, I walk you through how to not only use Seeking Alpha to, to help pick dividend stocks, but that's been a huge help in being able to track my portfolio, make sure that I'm not missing out on anything. So check out this video. I think it'll be really helpful for you. Next question is from I Failed Prick. He says, could you do a video explaining the different ways to increase your income? 
For example, what do you do that enables you to deposit thousands of dollars? Thank you for your time. All right, so this one I was thinking of, and it might look like just a personal finance question, right? What can you do to increase your personal income? But it, it does affect investing a lot because the amount you can invest, like I've said before, is the difference between how much you earn and your cost of living. And so being able to increase your earnings greatly increases the amount that you can speed up your investments. Uh, so, and I know it's easy to just say, okay, go get a college education, become a doctor, lawyer, whatever, but that's not really realistic for a lot of people. So I wanted to go through a few things that I've seen. I've seen people make a lot of money in, I mean, a variety of different job roles. So it's not just one specific type of job that you have to do to make a lot of money. There's people, I mean, in every different industry, from sales to design to everything in between project management, that they, there's people that make high salaries and there's people that make low salaries or low wages. Uh, and I think there's certain characteristics that really over time will push you one direction or the other. Uh, the first thing is, I would say if you're starting off, especially work for experience, not for your wage. Look for positions that are going to put, put you in a better place five years from now. Don't focus on just like the, you know, whatever pays a little bit more hourly or whatever. Focus on which one is going to give you the best resume, the best LinkedIn portfolio, uh, give you the best experience. That one's a pretty obvious one. Another one I think is a little, I mean, I see this attitude all the time and I've seen it play out both directions where people, they get frustrated if somebody comes to them at their work and asks them to do something that's not specifically in their job role. If they do this and somebody asks them a question that isn't exactly for them, then they might be frustrated about it. And this happens all the time. And I think it's just such a weird attitude to have. You should be trying to make yourself completely as resourceful as possible. Somebody that other people in the company, they look at you and they go, oh, that's the person I go to when I need help with something, when I have questions about something. He either knows the answers or he helps me find the answers. If they look at you and they think, oh, that person, you know, he's never the right one to talk to. He always pushes me off to someone else. The, you're, what you're doing is you're destroying your value in the company. If you have the attitude of this isn't my job, I shouldn't have to deal with this. You know, I didn't put this on my resume. This isn't my job description. You're just destroying your value. You're minimizing your job role. When there's times for layoffs, the people that have that attitude will be the first ones to go. And on the reverse, when you expand your job role, when you make yourself so that you have a, a high demand in the company, that people rely on you, they look at you as, as somebody that solves problems, that is solution-oriented, all of that stuff, you really expand your value and you'll naturally gravitate upwards if you do that. Another thing is to network as much as possible. So a huge part of finding jobs, good positions, is your interpersonal skills. If you don't know how to work with other people, you have to work with other people. You have to get along with the people you work with. Nobody really wants to just go to work to just go to work. You're there with other people. You have to get along with them. Um, you should never burn bridges. You never know when you're going to run into these people again, what different positions they'll hold. And so even the people that you don't like working with, you better make it so that they have positive experiences working with you. And that goes for, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a non-important job. If you're working customer service or whatever, you need to have interpersonal skills and have positive experiences. Make sure people like working with you because it is a small world. You really don't know when you're going to be working with those people. And with networking, it's a huge thing. That's how you make relationships is mostly by the people that you're around. And then the last thing I'll say on this topic is this is something that you can somewhat, I think, reverse architect. So 
instead of looking at a job of what it can do for you, you need to look at it from the perspective of like the, the owner, the entrepreneur that was handed a bunch of funding. They started this company and they have all these goals. They promised investors that they're going to try to hit these goals. They're going to try to do this. They might have a lot of pressure on them. And right now there's a lot of money to go around. Entrepreneurs, these people, these business owners, they will pay a lot of money if they believe, if they believe they found somebody that is going to help them accomplish their goals. If you can go into a job interview, if you can walk into a company and you can lay out how you're going to offer immediate value to them, how you're going to solve the problems that they have, they are going to pay you well, especially if you're able to back that up and work hard enough to do it. But if you come into a company and you, you're, all you're concerned about is what that company is going to do for you, I mean, they're not going to they're not going to be eager to, to have you on. So you have to look at it from the company perspective and and how you can offer as much value as possible. If you come at it from that perspective, you might see how you better suit the needs of it. And I, I guarantee you're going to have better outcomes with with getting paid well, with being able to know how to increase your personal value in the company and the demand that you have, the position that you have, the demand that the company has for you. So those are just a little little thoughts on it. I mean, I could go on on this topic for a long time, but those are something I think to consider, just my two cents on that one. Okay, so that was like a 10-minute rant on that one. Um, I'll do two more questions. The next one is from Paragon. Uh, he says, how much do you deposit every month? This one really comes down to a lot of different factors. So I try to put in a certain amount every month, like I might put in like 200 bucks a week. Uh, but there's a lot of different situations. If I take on extra side work, if I have extra income come in, I'll try to put that in without spending it. So I'll try to just skip the part where I go and find something that I just want to buy just to buy. And I'll try to just put that straight into my account. And then there's times where there's like extra expenses where I'll have at one point in time or a lot of different expenses. Like just in the past month, I've had a couple things that have cost me a few thousand dollars more than what our normal day-to-day living expenses are. In those situations, I usually have to cut down and I don't deposit as much in those upcoming months. So it really just depends on the situation. And that's a big variable between people, what your income is, if you're currently paying off other debts, like uh, if you're, you know, if you're paying off car loans, if you're paying off school loans, all these different situations really comes down to that. I don't have like a fixed amount I put in every month. When I get extra money, I try to make the most of it. Like if I get a tax refund or something where I, I don't have it going to something specific, I will try to just move that into my investment account without it going in between. Otherwise, I might just find something to spend it on that's frivolous, right? So that's how that's how it's been for me so far. Alrighty, the last question I'll do is from Mr. Silverstacker1. He says, I'm really torn on dividend investing. Right now, I'm in growth stocks to help me build my portfolio in a more timely manner. Once it grows to a much higher amount, I will then convert it into dividend investment portfolio. I might be doing it wrong, but in my head, it makes sense. Thanks for the video. So I wanted to actually like broaden this to a, a bigger, a broader point here where I've had people that they get really wrapped up in their head that there's there's only one strategy. There's only one best way to invest. In reality, we have no idea what strategy is going to work best over the next 10 years. You can look at the past 10 years, the past 20 years, and you can say, well, growth has worked best for the last 10 years. Dividend investments have worked best for the last 30 years on average. You can look at that, but that doesn't mean it's going to work best for the next 10 years or that any of the that real estate might be a better investment than the stock market for the next 10 years, for all we know. We don't have any idea. All of us are putting forth our best bet here. We're doing a strategy that makes sense to us and you go forward with it. And so 
my suggestion would just to, to beat a stick, which whatever one makes you feel the most comfortable, makes you feel that if the market went down and it went down a lot, you would be able to, to not be concerned about your portfolio. If the market goes down a few percentage points and you feel yourself getting nervous, then you should not be doing this type of investing. That, that's the simple fact. If you feel uneasy with the market going up and down that level of volatility, you need to change your strategy to something that you feel comfortable with. And so I have a hard time when people, you know, I get these emails and things where people are moving lots of money over, copying my, my specific portfolio. And the thing that concerns me about that is the fact that they might not be in the exact same situation I am. I built my portfolio around my personal needs, around my, the companies I have experience with, my biases, my experience with these companies and the, the time that I've spent studying them, I don't know if they have that same exact context between those picks of theirs. So I think when people make a portfolio, they got to make it so that it makes sense with them. If they're uncomfortable with growth and they want to do a more conservative dividend strategy, they can do that. Now, if they're uncomfortable picking individual dividend stocks, there's plenty of good ETFs that make it so that they don't have to be an expert investor. They don't have to pick those in individual stocks. They can just buy something like SPHD or VYM or those type of funds, and those will automatically diversify them. And then they have some assurance there that they're not the ones picking those stocks and all they have to do is invest in those funds. I think saying I'm really torn on dividend investing, I think you might be splitting hairs a little bit. You already have your money probably in really good companies that will do well over the next 10 or 20 years. You don't know if dividend investing will do better or if growth will do better. Your portfolio very well might outperform mine. So nobody can see the future. We can just look at the situation we're in, the experience that we have, and pick what we feel most comfortable with. So that's always what I tell people is to pick a strategy that they feel comfortable with. The best way to gauge if you feel comfortable with your strategy, wait for the market to drop a little bit and it will test your comfort level. If you start getting nervous when the market drops three or 4%, you know you take that as a signal because how are you gonna feel when it drops 20? So you gotta find a strategy that you feel comfortable with, stick with that one. Okay, so moving on to the news, I teased this clip of Charlie Munger being asked what he thinks of the Boeing situation. So I'll go ahead and play the rest of that now. Um what about um, Boeing and the 737 MAX? I mean, they're going to fix that? Would you go on the plane? Fix it. Would you go on the plane after they said it was fixed? Yes, of course. And they will fix it well. But I don't think it was really all that excusable that they made the mistake. I want to ask you, Charlie, a little bit about... Um, that was a serious mistake. So he says he thinks it was a, a unusual lapse. He reemphasized actually after that that he thinks it was a, a really serious mistake, that it was very unusual for Boeing to do that. It doesn't reflect their record. Um, he asks him, you know, if he would fly on the 737 MAX after they put it back in the air. And he says, absolutely. He thinks that it'll be that they're not going to put it back up with any chance of it being dangerous. And I kind of agree with him on that. I think the level of scrutiny that they have now if they make one little mistake now, it's going to be serious, completely serious for them, devastating. So I don't think that they will have any chance of making a mistake when they put it back up. And I think it will ironically probably be one of the safer planes in the air when they get this fixed. And then the last thing was, I've already told you about HBO's documentary, their two-hour documentary on Elizabeth Holmes called The Inventor. And this one is produced by ABC. It's a podcast called The Dropout. And I, I like the ABC one a lot more. So I like this podcast a lot more than what I saw from HBO. HBO, they took this angle where they, they tried to broaden it to the point of Silicon Valley 
it's good for tech and software but outside of that you know they they tried to make it sound like they can't do anything outside of that and it had these kind of political undertones to it abc the dropout was much more just direct laying out the story exactly as it happened all the detailed it's far more detailed they do have more time to work with but they use a lot more like original uh, recordings from different people and interviews and i've just found it a lot more interesting so I would check out, if you're interested in this story, that free podcast on iTunes and all of that, I think it's pretty interesting. And eventually I'll watch the uh, TV series as well. Alrighty, so other than that, um, I'll be going over another sector in the portfolio. We're getting down to the last few here. I'll be doing another one this weekend, hopefully, and I think it'll be a good one. It'll be an interesting one. Uh, I'll be going over that, and you guys have a good week. I'll catch you later.